I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Leanna Dragoman. Leanna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little about who you are? Yeah, I um, I am in my early 40s. It's a great, great age range. <laughs> I was born and lived most of my life in Youngstown, Ohio, which is in the northeastern part of Ohio. Um, it's a deindustrialized city near Cleveland, like right in between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. Um, and in that region, it, it was... Um, I think probably one of the biggest steel menu producers um, during, you know, the time when steel was big industry in the United States. Mm. Um, so I feel like that the reason I bring it up is that I feel like just the landscape and that world that I grew up in has really influenced who I am today. So I feel like that's a big piece of who I am. Um, my uh, parents are divorced. My father uh, is an immigrant from Romania. He defected uh, under Ceausescu, who's one of the a very dangerous dictator um, of Romania. My father defected in the 70s, um, went to several different countries before he was able to actually enter into the United States um, through sponsorship from a distant cousin of ours. Um, my mom grew up in Youngstown, Ohio, lived most of her life there. Um, as a, as a, the profession that I'm in, I am a service designer. I've been in the creative field, different types of creative fields, design field for a little over 15 years. Oh, wow. Um, so as a service designer, uh, you know, we essentially, so currently as a service designer, I work in the city for the city of Philadelphia. And, you know, I think that service design can feel very abstract and complicated for people, but really what I do is in the name of my title, which is I design services. And, but I think the, the, the nuance there is that as a service designer, we apply human centered, people centered methodologies to how we do design services. Um, and so a big way that we do that is through something called participatory design, which is a, a belief system that says it is impractical. It is not ethical to design service experiences without the people who are most impacted by those service experiences. So um, Megan, when I first met you, we were working on a project with the Office of Homeless Services. And mm -hmm. so in that context, it's people who are accessing those services. So people who are experiencing homelessness, it's the security officers who are on the front lines of that service experience. It's the social work staff. It's the customer service representative. So it's not just engaging with leaders who oftentimes have a very far removed uh, perspective from what's happening on the ground. Um, mm -hmm. So as service designers, it's really collaborating across an organization's hierarchy, gathering lived experience, 
and um, ensuring that that perspective or those perspectives really make their way into um, how a service should actually be designed. So that's a little bit of description there because I, I am um, a lot of people maybe haven't heard of service to the service design field or what a service designer is. Mm-hmm. I get so excited to hear about service design. And I've also been really excited to um, engage and work with you and with your team. And I, I really, I really think on the one hand, I think it's incredible um, that we have service designers um, across our systems. And on the other hand, I also think it's like, a little disappointing that systems do not already exist for the purpose of the end user and that mm-hmm. there has to be a special a special um, profession that says, hey, we're going to listen to your voices and incorporate your voices into how um, how different systems are designed. I agree 100% that, you know, oftentimes when we're doing our work, I think, a, I don't know if it's a criticism or if it's a, if it, if it's a, if it's the opposite of a criticism, if it's a compliment, what people will say, well, yeah, that's a no brainer. And it's my, maybe my internal response is like, well, if it's a no brainer, then why aren't we doing it? You know, right. (laughs) You know, and I think in particular in government, which is, it's such a siloed, organization. It's a massive organization. You know, if we think about a municipality, it's massive services or life essential. Um, but just the way that government has been organized, especially the city of Philadelphia, which is such an old, it's an old city. It's an old government. A lot of what we experience today is built on um, such a long history that I think um this perspective, I think the perspective that social work, I think that's where that alignment comes from. So I think the perspective of service designers, this the um, perspective philosophy that feels like the backbone of, of social work, which really centers people. Mm-hmm. Um, strange enough, you know, is, is, is not at the table oftentimes um, for, for so many different reasons. One being that, right. Philly is such an old city to, I think the systems are so big and overwhelming and you have staff that are beyond capacity. Um, And then I think just, you know, three, I mean, there's many reasons, but three, just power. I think how power works Mm -hmm. Uh, and which then, you know, makes it difficult to do people centered work, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, in, in your extensive career as a service designer, what types of systems have you provided support to? You know, I think that I appreciate the way you framed that. I, as a service designer, oftentimes you're brought in, I think a lot of systems are built on patches. And so you are brought in to fix a patch. Um, so, you know, I think I first started to get into service design in the public sector um, about eight years ago. At this point, I uh, got a fellowship with a nonprofit in New York City called the Public Policy Lab. And the first project that we worked on was with the New York City Housing and uh, Housing and Preservation Agency in New York City. 
And we were working on a, you know, as a consultant, and I'm sure you experience this, you work, you're brought in to work on such a specific piece. Mm -hmm. And so we were working on the application process. So improving the application process for affordable housing. But quickly, as you get dig in, you really start to see how interconnected everything is. And if you pull this string, all these other strings come with it. And so Mm -hmm. I think, um, you know, eight years later, now working inside government, I think that we do have the opportunity to have more of a systems view. But I still think we're not doing systems work. We're still we're still kind of making changes that are specific to one service experience, you know, whether it's improving just the intake system for the Office of Homeless Services, even though that system is attached to this other system and this other system and this other service that all mm-hmm. kind of connect. Um, so I, just to kind of summarize, I, I honestly feel like we're not working at the systems level just yet, but mm-hmm. hopefully, you know, over time, as we continue to establish our work and, and work with multiple agencies, hopefully that can happen. Mm. So ideally um, all of these different different uh, systems departments would kind of be integrated in their approaches to having like person-centered design. Yeah, because I think if you, just the way that government is organized, um, you know, if you, let's say you're behind on your taxes, you might, in order to get up to speed on your taxes, of course you would work with our Department of Revenue, but then you might have to go to another office that supports Um, You might have to have a hearing, let's say, in order to get on a payment plan uh, based on your income level. And then you might have to go to another office to kind of fulfill that payment. So every experience a resident has with government, I mean, that's like a simple one. But if you think about starting Mm -hmm. your own business, you might have to interact with licenses and inspection. You probably, if it's a food related business, you might have to interact with the Department of Health. Maybe you have to work with our commerce de- commerce department. So it's, um, there's all these steps that, that uh, many departments own. Um, and I think that government is moving in the right direction saying, all right, let's really understand the experience of, let's say, a, a person who's starting a business and mm-hmm. design around their experience as opposed to an organizational mental model, which is like, I am this office and I own just this piece and I'm only going to worry about just this piece and just this experience. And then another mm-hmm. office says, I'm just going to, this is my piece of the puzzle. And I'm, so, you know, so it's a, it's mm-hmm. a different type of prioritization where you have agencies for, again, a lot of different reasons, maybe prioritizing their organizational lens versus the lens of a resident or a business owner or whoever who's trying to interact with, to do something, accomplish something, and they're getting pinged around from one department to the next. That's very confusing. It, it's, you know, takes a lot of time. It can, it can cost a lot of money. Um, some people have to hire other people to help them navigate government services. So I think mm-hmm. that creates a big barrier for a resident who doesn't have time, who doesn't have the money 
who doesn't have the kind of mental bandwidth to understand how government works, you know, in mm-hmm. order to just get something. So, um, yeah. Right. So I'm going to ask that it's kind of a big question and I, I would assume that you don't have like a fully formulated um, response to this, but I'm, I'm curious, what do you think it would take for, um, for our systems to really begin to adopt and embrace the person-centered design that your career path emphasizes in all the work that you do? Hmm. I think, I think, um, and that's a big question. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Well, I think that oftentimes we work in this space of scarcity. You know, I think if you work in nonprofits, if you work in the public sector, is this feeling of being, you know, at capacity and anything beyond what you're just, you know, anything beyond survival mode feels like a heavy lift. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, so sometimes that, that, um, engaging agencies in a people-centered process because it's not just about creating an output, you know, like redesigning a service so that it better serves the needs of residents and frontline staff, et cetera. But it's also the process you use, which can take some time, you know, where you are first engaging in qualitative research, interviews, really understanding people's current state experience, lived experience, their challenges, where there are opportunities to make improvement, how people are being ingenious in their day-to-day to solve problems. Um, and, and then you go into the next phase and you say, okay, this is what we discovered. These are ways people are already solving these problems. So let's amplify that and let's design a future state that makes this experience better for frontline staff and for mm-hmm. residents. And that can just take time. And so I guess my answer is addressing capacity. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think addressing capacity is also a a mindset shift in valuing valuing people-centered experiences, people-centered work environments, people-centered, you know, truly being resident focused in, in how we make decisions. That's a, you know, people prioritize what they value. And so I think that's a cultural shift. That's a mindset shift. It's a, so in order to address capacity, it's, it's also, um, um, really thinking about, um, you know, what do we really value as a organization and institution and then aligning around that. Mm. So let's shift gears for a little bit. So we know that every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about some of the adversities that you faced? Yeah. So um, I think one adversity that I think has shaped, it's both personal and then it has also shaped where I'm at why I do the work that I do at this moment in time. Um, So in 2004, I was in an apartment fire and I um, lost 
everything. <laughs> I lost my clothes, wow. my books. I, I was, you know, everything. And um, also I have scars on my body from uh, being physically injured from the fire. Um, and that was just, you know, a very traumatic event in my life. And, uh, you know, went to the hospital, had to go through a lot of physical and occupational therapy to, because it's the, I was impacted on my ankles, feet, and then legs all the way up to my knees and then my right hand. And so there was, you know, movement issues wow. and all kinds of stuff. So, um, that was a big moment in my life. <laughs> a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. um, lessons in there, but I think also one of the aspects of that was aside from just the physical healing was, um, you know, I had to, I was living in Chicago at the time I had to move back home to Youngstown. Um, you know, I didn't have good health insurance. I was a graduate student at the time. So it was like this basic minimum. I was too old to be on my mom's health insurance. So I had this weird kind of graduate student health insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that was really in a moment of crisis, navigating the healthcare system and also navigating government social services, like getting on food assistance, um, applying for those programs while Mm -hmm. being physically injured. I was very grateful that my mom was able to be my advocate because I just don't know how I, as an individual, would have been able to both navigate the healthcare system and government at that time. Um, It really opened my eyes to um, how these systems oftentimes don't work for people and especially in moments of crisis, um, it's not just about, oh, I got to wait in line, you know, all day, but it's like, I physically cannot do that, <laughs> you know, both mm-hmm. physically, emotionally. And so I think when you are in an, a moment of trauma, when you have experienced some kind of trauma, I think the services that surround you at that, in those moments of crisis really need to bend to your immediate experience and not the opposite. So Mm. um, anyways, that's kind of where I, it was a big moment in my life, but I think it's, it's also one thing that um, has shaped why I do the work that I do right now. Mm. That's really powerful. Um, Also to think about what things may have been like, had the services that you access been centered around you and your needs as you were recovering from the trauma that you had experienced too. Right. I mean, recovery was purely physical and it was really around like, can you now walk? Great. You're healed. You know, it is like, uh, when I hear beeping sounds, I start to sweat profusely and need to run out of a room. I think that there's some mental health, you know, Mm -hmm. that, you know, so I think that, um, yeah, I think a more holistic approach to healing, a more holistic approach to, you know, I'm kind of repeating myself now, but um, in this very, in this emergency situation, um, how can these holistic, well, first of all, they weren't holistic, they they weren't presented in that way, but how services can really bend to you 
but then also in the process of healing, how um, that experience can be more holistic and that with no health insurance at the time, this is like pre pre um, healthcare.gov, um, you know, mm. that just you're kind of left there to mm. figure it out and pay mm. for it yourself. So if you don't have the money, you're not going to pay extra for things um, that feel like a luxury. Right. Like mental health, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And I'm also thinking about how your experience, your individual personal experience, how oftentimes that experience is replicated um, for other people across the country. Um, how often we are not at the center of care and how often we are already trying to uh, do the best that we can to survive whatever adversities we're facing and also feeling that we have to battle against the system too. Right. And I think, you know, we've, in the work that we've done together, we've, the one thing I really appreciate about the work that you do and that I feel like also really aligns with the service design work that we do is really thinking about the frontline experience. So we talk about oftentimes when we think of, when we say people centered, or at least, you know, within government, okay, people centered, you think of residents, the resident experience, the business owner, the taxpayer, but really also thinking about, um, you know, frontline staff are trying their best to do what they're, what they're trying to do within the space and the resources and the capacity that they have. And so, um, you know, I think also how do you support people who are on the front lines of service delivery with their own um, stress and their own, the way that they're taking in their day-to-day experiences so that we can treat workers and from a holistic lens that they have the mental health resources, the financial resources, the physical environment to support their work for themselves, but then also so that they can, they have the space and the capacity to then work with residents who are experiencing their own crisis, their own trauma, their own stress, and have the kind of space and capacity to do that with dignity. And I think oftentimes when we think about frontline staff, it's you know, why aren't you doing this? Why is it like this? As opposed to really understanding the humanity of their experience too, Mm -hmm. and how they be a part of the equation. Right. Can you share a few important positive moments or turning points in your story? Yeah. I mean, I think when I, when I think of that, the fire and the impact on my body and just the general impact, I think one thing that it has taught me is that I can get through things like that. There is a way there are pathways. Granted, I had the support of my mom. Most often, oftentimes people don't have a social support to help them get through things. Um, So I don't want to sound Pollyanna when I say this, but Mm -hmm. I feel like um, it's just, you know, during the recession, I was, in what was it that 2008 I had lost my job I just feel like these moments these these moments where you're really just I don't know what the word is tested they they show you that um you just gotta like 
that you that that maybe there is creative resiliency, problem solving, working through, figuring out, and that it makes you it makes me feel like um I can get through things. It's not gonna be easy <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna be, you know, um that there there are ups and downs, but there's a certain amount of courage that I think um that the fire taught me uh, mm. while also has made me feel very vulnerable to the world. So it's like, you know, mm-hmm. maybe that's all related to one another. Mm-hmm. And isn't it interesting too, how these things happen in life. And if we had the choice, we wouldn't necessarily go back and experience them again. But um, there comes a point where we can look back and say like, yeah, this hurt. And it knocked me down, but I was able to get back up again. And I see myself as being stronger and more resilient. Yeah, hundred percent. I think oftentimes when we even talk as a team, I think that there is, and just, I, and I'm sure you experience this and I'd, I'd love to hear your perspective, but I feel like how, how, people who have, who have, um, experienced trauma can sometimes be represented as being, um, weak or broken Mm -hmm. or, and maybe those things are true in different ways, you know, but I think the, and, 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 but then I think if that is your, if that is like the, um, the, the, the summation of your understanding of a person who's experienced trauma, then you're going to treat them as that, as a broken person. And as a service designer, we have to be really careful of the assumptions, the way we're framing people, because I would say as a person who got through that fire, you know, I feel, I just said, you know, I feel like a very courageous person. I feel like I, I feel like, yeah, there are, we all experience weaknesses, but I have a certain amount of confidence in, um, you know, moving life forward. So I think that um, it's, it's also taught me that, you know, it's really important why the lived experience perspective is important and why as service designers or people that are working in this space, you can't immediately frame and make assumptions about what it is that you don't know or people's Mm -hmm. experiences that you don't fully understand because then you can really design harmful services, conversations, et cetera, that are purely based on a misunderstanding of, you know, who somebody really is. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What do you see for yourself in the future? What's your future vision? I think that's a really good question. Because I, you know, I was actually talking with the service design team today because we were we were talking about, you know, our personal visions, etc. And uh, it made me reflect on a month ago. I was listening. Michelle Obama has a new podcast, and I was listening to her interview her husband, and they were talking about legacy, and it made me realize that. I feel like I've been in such survival mode that the idea of a vision for a future or thinking about things like 
legacy feels um, has been out of touch. Like I have not, I feel like in an immediate future, it's like, you know, for, for my work, it's, you know, doing good work at the city, building a sustainable team, ensuring that um, we, that we are just a natural part of government. That would be a great future uh, that the, that the kind kind of impact that we want to make is actually the impact we're make, collectively making at the city. But I feel like the idea of a future feels very foreign to me, actually. Mm. And it's, it's, um, it's something I, maybe it's the pandemic. I feel like this is this kind of perpetual, you know, re- reminder that the future is, feels very unknowable. Um mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's my, my answer is, I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I really appreciate you sharing that too, because um, that's a reality for where we are sometimes. Sometimes we can see a really clear picture of what we want for the future with like specific goals and objectives and action steps. And other times we don't know. And um, it's important for us to make space for the times when we don't know what's coming next. Are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? You know, I, it's not so much a resource, but I feel like oftentimes when I'm in this, like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? I feel like, you know, my body feels like I'm in fight or flight. I feel just very anxious. I try to reflect on moments when I, it, it, it feels very physical, like moments where I physically feel joy or moments where I get so lost in something um, because I'm doodling or doing something that time doesn't exist. And so I try to reflect on those moments. Like there's something about fall coming and not being like I summer has the opposite effect on me. I feel hot. <laughs> I feel agitated, but there's something about like the a crisp blue sky and the the kind of fresh coldness of fall that brings me a lot of joy. And so it's like, all right, I'm going to, fall's coming and I need to make space for being outside my home with a mask, social distancing, but, you know, making time for, um, so that I can feel that. Or, you know, as I said, focusing in on things that where I feel like time isn't, you know, I'm so in it. I'm so focused. I'm so enjoying what I'm doing that I don't even think about time, you know, making physical physical space and time in my life to, to do those things. And I feel like that it's coming out of those moments that feels life changing. That feels like, Oh, Mm. this was, this was a time well spent. And now I'm, you know, it's just, it's helpful for my mental health, my, my well being, et cetera. So it's not so much a resource. It's kind of an Mm. activity that I do um, when I'm, in have the capacity to do um, mm-hmm. that I think is, is super helpful. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this fall weather. <laughs> mm. Is there anything else that you want to share with our audience? Um, no, not at this time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your vulnerability and your openness and um, all the really powerful, uh, encouraging words of wisdom and reflection that you've shared with us. Thanks, Megan, for inviting me. I, uh, you know, I was like, 
oh, what's this going to be about? And then I, I, I just appreciate your thoughtfulness and your questions and, and the work that you do. And, you know, I'm just very grateful that you're in your life and we get to work together. So I'm happy to, to participate in this podcast and, and uh, share myself with the world. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corrado, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there's always a story of strength and resilience.